Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. There have been a lot of things that have prevented me from doing my show or my podcast over the last couple of months. There have been power outages. There have times where I have just taken a break and gone out of town. And there's also been Southwest Airlines royally screwing up. That happened months ago. Actually, oh my gosh, it's uh, over seven months ago that that happened. I still don't trust Southwest Airlines. But the point is, last week I didn't do my show because... After three years, after over three years, COVID finally got me. Yeah, I finally got sick with COVID. I guess it was bound to happen, but fortunately, I I could have been a lot worse, but I had a fever and I also had a a cold, um, some stuffiness, some coughing, and my voice sounded made James Earl Jones sound like Steve Urkel. That's how sick I was. I'm better now, and I believe that if I were to test myself for COVID now, I'd probably test negative. I'm certainly not contagious, and I'm definitely not sick. But if it hadn't been for me being vaccinated and also being double boosted, and later this year I will be triple boosted, I probably would have been in a lot worse shape. So just remember, people, COVID is still out there. We're not at the worst of the pandemic anymore, obviously. And you can see that because a lot of people out there are not wearing masks as frequently as they used to, as they were obligated to do. But if you have not been vaccinated and you have not been boosted, I highly recommend that you do so because this vaccine and the booster that comes with it literally saves lives. Has it saved my life? Well, I, I, I can't exactly say, but most likely it has. But I'm very thankful that I'm well now. I'm thankful I'm able to do my show. And I'm also thankful that I have a backlog of movies to review for you because it means I have a lot to talk about. So let's get started with the newest movie that's out in theaters right now. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Last Voyage of the Demeter. And this is based on a story written by Bram Stoker. It's actually not exactly based on a story. It's based on a section of the novel Dracula. Specifically, it's the first chapter of the novel Dracula that was called The Captain's Log. And there have been dozens of film adaptations of Dracula, both old and new, and a lot of adaptations, and understandably so, skip this chapter. And it's pretty easy to see why. But the Captain's Log, the chapter of Dracula, goes over the a, a trip, an ill-fated trip, that a ship called the Demeter takes from Bulgaria to London. And unbeknownst to them, amongst the cargo that they carry is remains of Nosferatu, who is also known as Dracula. And it's, it's, under, it's easy to understand why film adaptations would skip this chapter of Dracula, because the captain's log is mainly a letter. And if you go to a lot of, if you read a lot of those books from the 17 and 1800s, there are significant sections of them, not just Dracula, but, but other 
non-horror books like Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice, as well as some other similarly themed novels like Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. And they incorporate a lot of letters into their narrative. And I don't know how much readers back in the 1700s and 1800s liked to read letters. For me, reading these kinds of novels and reading letters is kind of tedious. But as this movie demonstrates, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, even though the captain's log is just essentially a letter, a very long letter, it does have a very good story to tell. And it also has a very unique take on a classic horror villain and all the power to this movie for bringing out this chapter of Dracula that, that had otherwise been overlooked. Actually, this film adaptation was actually uh, written script wise by somebody by the name of Braggy shoot jr. And he actually wrote the initial spec script of this of the story when he befriended a colleague who was working on Bram Stoker's Dracula, a film that was made 31 years ago. And naturally this film had been in development hell for more than two decades, but Amblin partners actually obtained the right to the story in October, 2019. And as this movie demonstrates, the development was in a lot of respects appears to be worth the wait. So this movie details the journeys of the Demeter, including its captain, whose name is Captain Elliot. He's played by Liam Cunningham. Also a Romanian woman who sneaks onto the vessel, whose name is Anna, who's played by Iceling Franciosi. And also a doctor who has been educated at Cambridge and also is educated in astronomy who gets on the ship because he wants to get out of Bulgaria. His name is Clemens and he's played by Corey Hawkins. And Corey Hawkins is one of those actors who's not a household name, uh, but he's actually American yet. He's playing British in this, but he's, there's nothing wrong with that. But Corey Hawkins is somebody you have definitely seen in a number of movies recently in 2015, straight out of Compton. He played Dr. Dre In Black Klansman, he had a brief but memorable role as the real-life Black Panther Kwame Ture. In fact, his scene is amazing. I didn't think he was as good as Dr. Dre in Straight Outta Compton, but I thought he was excellent in Black Klansman. And he's also been in a number of other big movies recently, like Kong Skull Island back in 2017 and In the Heights uh, a couple of years ago. And he makes a really good leading man. Also, it's unusual for somebody of color to play one of these roles in a story about Dracula, but I think that the movie ties in Corey Hawkins' character's color very well and also gives a a lot of motive as to why Clemens would want to be on this ship and what kind of purpose he would serve the, the, the people who are on the ship. And there are various other archetypes who are on the ship as well. There's a very devoutly religious chef who's religious to the point of being superstitious. You also have some blue-collar ship hands. And you also have the son 
of the captain, whose name is Toby, who's played by Woody Norman in an excellent performance here. And the movie goes the way you would expect it. You know that this is going to be the beginning of the story of Dracula. And you also know that the voyage that the Demeter, the ship, is on is going to be doomed. You also know there's going to be vampires. And this movie lives up to all of that. And I was kind of bracing myself for a, a horror movie coming out in August. I was thinking, well, you know, it's it's the end of the summer season. Barbie is already out there setting box office records. It's literally made more than a billion dollars right now. So it seems like the rest of the films that are coming out in August, which is usually not a great month for movies as it is, but it's probably better than January where you have some of the best films out there as well as some of the worst. Eventually, this is going to... This, this movie doesn't exactly have to be excellent, but much to my surprise, it actually was. I thought the acting in this film was amazing. Corey Hawkins turns in one of his best performances to date. It's very hard to top his performance in Black Klansman, but here he makes a great leading man. I also loved all the characters, and I also identified very much with the captain's son, Toby. And you also fear very much for him. And not only is this story of Dracula, or at least the origin of Dracula, or the semi-origin of Dracula's story, as it was written by Bram Stoker, very scary and also very suspenseful. But there are characters with whom you really attach in this film, and when some of them meet their fate, it actually is very sad, not to mention very scary as well. And you fear for every single person on this ship. So there are a lot of great things that are really riding on this movie. And the movie, I suppose, given how it was released in August and not October, didn't exactly have to be scary. But then again, there are some horror films that come out in October that are also letdowns. I've seen plenty of them. But The Last Voyage of the Demeter actually turns in what a lot of other people who have adapted the story of Dracula on film have generally ignored. And this movie, even though it spent a lot of time in development hell, the way it was directed, the the special effects that are very effective in this, as well as the suspense and all the round characters in this film, make it a very pleasant surprise for the month of August, which is why I give The Last Voyage of the Demeter my rating of a knockout. I think Corey Hawkins is an excellent leading man in this film, and also some of the great supporting performances by Iceling Franciosi, Liam Cunningham, and Woody Norman, amongst others, make this film worth watching alone, but also the suspense, the horror, the special effects, and also the story here makes this film very much worth watching, regardless of what time or what month it's released into theaters. And I could see this as a Halloween classic later on in the next couple of years.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. This is the first Ninja Turtles movie in seven years, and it's also the first animated Ninja Turtles film in 16 years. And this film may be one of the best, and that gives gives you a little bit of a spoiler about what this what I think of this film. But this film follows the Turtle Brothers as they work to earn the love of New York City while facing down an army of mutants. And this film is definitely a franchise reboot to the Ninja Turtles cinematic franchise, but the Ninja Turtles don't seem to have waned in popularity since the pinnacle of their popularity in the early 90s. Granted, as the 90s progressed and other properties like the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and Pokemon grew in popularity. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles definitely took a backseat, especially after some disappointing films like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 from 1993. But Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem is definitely made by people who grew up with the Ninja Turtles like I did and certainly had an appreciation for them in the comic books and the cartoon series and at least in the first film, which has aged particularly well. I do remember when I was eight years old, my dad took me, my brothers, and um, some of my cousins to see the second movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. I loved it back then, but that film hasn't aged especially well. Plus, there are some very dated parts of it, especially the part with Vanilla Ice. But I feel like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem gets to the heart of what made the Ninja Turtles so popular and so appealing to begin with. And one of the things that this movie does very well is they actually don't forget one part of the Ninja Turtles' full name. A lot of other properties, be it the other movies, the the cartoon shows, tend to forget that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are actually teenagers, hence the teenage in their name. But in this film, they are played by young people who might not be teenagers. I don't exactly have time to look up their names, but they're certainly young enough to be or they they certainly sound young enough to be, or they at, at least sound like teenagers. And the brothers uh, are voiced by Micah Abbey, who voices Donatello, Shaman Brown Jr., who voices Michelangelo, Nicholas Cantu, who voices Leonardo, and Brady Noon, who voices Raphael. And not only are these characters a bit more in line with their the original uh, cartoon show. In the other words, I think that Raphael has been and um, made to be the more rebellious of the four. And here, I think he's made a little bit more like the cartoon show where he's a bit more of a dry wit like Stephen Colbert or Groucho Marx and not exactly the Travis Bickle-like rebel. And I actually kind of like that reinvention of Raphael's character in general. But I also really liked how all four of the Turtles had been 
sheltered in their sewer as a result of them being raised by Splinter, who in this movie is voiced by Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan is Chinese, and yet he's voicing a character who's Japanese, but I don't think anybody is actually going to have a problem with that. But eventually, the teenagers, being as curious young teenagers as they are, eventually venture out of their protective sewer home, and they befriend an aspiring teenage journalist named April O'Neil, who is voiced in this film by Ao Edabiri. And Ao Edabiri is an up-and-coming actress. She's been in a number of TV shows, and she's also been in a few movies that I've seen. But here, April O'Neil is being reinvented. She's no longer a woman in her who's presumed to be in her late 20s or 30s. And I, I think one of the big reasons for that is because it's kind of <clears throat> hard in the media landscape to believe that somebody in their 20s or 30s would actually make a living being in the number one news network in New York City. But I actually liked how they reinvented April O'Neil to be an aspiring journalist rather than an actual journalist. But there have already been some internet trolls who have been upset with the fact that April O'Neil in this movie is black. And this is the first movie incantation of April O'Neil being black. It's actually not the first time April O'Neil's character is black. She was black in another uh, cartoon show on Nickelodeon, on another Ninja Turtles cartoon show. But I haven't seen any of those shows. But I did not mind April O'Neil being black. In my book, it doesn't matter what color April O'Neil is, as long as she's not Megan Fox. And I think that A.O. Edabiri did a great job uh, voicing April O'Neil as well. And eventually, as the Ninja Turtles are venturing out into New York City and trying to find their place in the world, they ultimately find a whole gang of mutants who are just like them. They're outcasts because they are anthropomorphic animals who are trying to find their way in the world. And there are a lot of supporting characters in this. So I'll try not to name all of them, j just so I'm not giving off a roster of of names here, but let, let me just give you a couple of the major ones. There's a character by the name of Superfly, who I think was written specifically for this movie, and Superfly is voiced by Ice Cube, and he ultimately goes from being the main ally of the Ninja Turtles to be becoming the main adversary. And there are other characters who have been traditional um adversaries, like, for example, Rocksteady and Bebop, the Rhinoceros and the Warthog, respectively, who are voiced in this film by John Cena and Seth Rogen, respectively. And there are also some other characters as well. There are some characters who were traditionally male, but who were written as female for this film. For example, Rose Byrne is the voice of Leatherhead, who is a an anthropomorphic crocodile who, in the comic books and some of the TV shows was a male crocodile from Louisiana and Rose Byrne made her a female crocodile from Australia. And I think that was actually a very nice touch. You also had other characters like Wingnut and Scumbug who were traditionally male. And I actually liked that the, the, the film made some of these characters female. And they also gave them very distinctive personalities with what little time had been given. 
And there are a number of supporting characters in this film, but I don't think actually the film overwhelmed the audience with some of these other characters. I think all of them had their ample screen time, and even though you're only given probably a couple of seconds to a couple of minutes to know some of these characters, I think you got a good grasp about who these characters are, as well as who they could be in various sequels. And I also should mention that the animation style of this film is amazing. It is a CGI animated film that actually kind of looks like it's stop motion animation. And I actually really loved the style of the animation in this film. And it's actually, it is a combination or a collaboration between Nickelodeon, who owns the rights to the Ninja Turtles characters, and also Point Grey Pictures and the animation studio. Is, there are actually two animation studios who provided the animation for this movie. There was Mikros Animation, who's based out of Montreal and Paris, and there's also Cinesite, which is based out of Vancouver. So this is largely a Canadian production, which is semi-no surprise considering that well, one of the producers and one of the screenwriters of this film is Seth Rogen, who is a native to Canada as well as an everlasting teenager. And he also provided the voice for Bebop. But I loved this movie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. I think it is the best Ninja Turtles film in over 30 years. It could be one of the most fun films of the year. And I think this is one of those films that if I were to get it on Blu-ray or 4K, I would be able to watch it many times. It's, it's one of those films you just can't stream once. And maybe I'm a bit biased because I grew up watching and loving the Ninja Turtles and absorbing just about anything that had the Ninja Turtles on it, at least you know when I was a kid in the early 90s. But this film, I think, lived up to a lot of the hype of the Ninja Turtles in the late 80s and early 90s and also got to the core of the characters and why we love them, which is why I give Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem my rating of a knockout. Not only is it expertly animated in a very unique CGI animated style that looks flawless and as well as looks unique, but I also really loved what they did with the characters, not just the main characters, but also even some of the supporting characters and also some of the characters who pop up in this movie for just a few seconds. I think it has a stellar voice cast and also it's written incredibly well and kudos to Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, Jeff Rowe, who also directed the film, Dan Hernandez, and Benji Samet for writing a very solid screenplay and story for uh, one of the best Ninja Turtles movies, although I can't decide if this was better than the original 1990 version. I will say this, though, it comes very close. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Meg 2, The Trench. This is a film that is, of course, the sequel to the 2018 film The Meg, which was released late uh, in the summer, five years ago. And this film was, uh, Meg 2, The Trench, was released almost around the same time in the United States. It debuted at the Shanghai International Film Festival on June 9th of this year and made its way into theaters nationwide on August 4th of this year. This is one of the films that I would have reviewed along with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem last week if I didn't get COVID. But fortunately, I'm better now and I can review it for you right now. And honestly, The Meg was a film that I kind of thought was okay, but I think I gave it my rating of a strikeout because I didn't think there was anything particularly memorable about the original Meg. I thought it was another Jaws ripoff. The only difference between Jaws and the Meg is that the Meg, which is short for Megalodon, is just a really, really big shark. In other words, it's a shark that is about the size of a blue whale. And the movie The Meg was forgettable except for maybe its title and maybe a couple of scenes with that giant shark. But the movie was so off my radar that I actually forgot that Jason Statham and Rain Wilson were both in that film. But in Meg 2, The Trench, Jason Statham returns as Jonas Taylor, who is a veteran diver who specializes in deep sea search and rescue. And he's also the stepfather to a young girl named Mai Ying, who's uh, played by uh, Shuya Sophia. And he's also the husband of uh, Suyin Zhang, who is not in this film because she died, presumably in the original Meg movie. And in The Meg 2, there is a lot going on, and some of it, surprisingly, doesn't have very much to do with a giant shark. In Meg 2, The Trench, a research team encounters multiple threats while exploring the depths of the ocean, including a malevolent, or excuse me, a malevolent mining operation. What does a mining operation have to do with a giant shark? Well, nothing, and does the movie exactly live up to that story? Not exactly. But this film is actually based on a novel that's called The Trench that was written by Steve Alton. And interestingly enough, the original Meg film was based on a a novel also by Steve Alton called Meg, A Novel of Deep Terror. And there usually is a rule with movies that are adapted from books. And that rule is if they make a movie out of a book, regardless of whether the movie is good or bad, the book must be pretty good. It must be probably at least a little bit insightful. And that's certainly the case with The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which is based on one chapter of the book Dracula written by Bram Stoker. But this film didn't seem to have any insight at all. It just seemed like a very standard run-of-the-mill action film. And while the Meg itself looked very impressive in a CGI kind of standpoint, it just didn't really do it for me in terms of the story. I do grant you that the story here was probably more memorable than the original Meg, but that's not saying a lot considering that I saw the Meg once 
five years ago when it came out. And because of the hundreds, literally hundreds of movies I've seen after that, it hasn't really stayed in my mind all that much. And I don't think a couple of years from now or even six months from now, I'll remember very much about Meg 2, except for the fact that it just had a very muddled story that tried to fit way too much in. Added to the fact that there are also some other creatures besides the Megalodon that appear in this film as well. There's no explanation as to where they came from. There's no explanation as to whether they came they came about as a result of this Megalodon escaping from its shelter where it was being studied. No explanation for that whatsoever. You're also not sure, unlike the Godzilla films, whether the Megalodon is good or bad. Uh, it, it might be anti-human. It might not be by nature, but you never exactly know. And also, there are other random creatures that seem to be coming about here, but there's no explanation as to where they came from. There's no explanation as to what relation they have to the humans who are inhabiting this certain area of the world where they're vacationing or at least staying for a little while. There's no explanation as to whether human activity brought these creatures to life. And there are some very impressive special effects here, but ultimately the characters are not very memorable. Jason Statham kind of plays the same sort of tough guy he usually plays. And for a movie that's called Meg 2, the Megalodon should be the primary focus. And there are also some other human antagonists in this film who aren't very interesting, and the way they actually introduce themselves within the story is very bogus, especially when there's one character who actually, I guess, appears to be in this station in the trench and just stayed there. How he survived, what he was planning to do down there, how he was planning to make his way out of the trench, nothing there. The movie gives you absolutely nothing. And the characters here who die, you can almost sort of see their characters meeting their fate. You know, you, you have a pretty good idea that Jason Statham's character is going to live because he's Jason Statham, and when he's on screen, especially when he's in an action movie, he goes through a lot of hell, but he makes it out okay on the other side. But there are other characters who are jerks who you know are going to meet their end. It's not very surprising when they do meet their end. And it's also one of those films where you just don't really know where the story's going. You don't really know how the Meg fits into it. So it's a great-looking film. It has a lot of very impressive special effects. But Meg to the Trench gets my rating of a flunk out. And the reason it gets my rating of that is because not necessarily the acting isn't necessarily bad, but the story is predictable when it really shouldn't be. The story is also very unbelievable for a film that takes place in a world where there is a shark the size of a blue whale. And you also don't really know the motives of some of these characters, including some of the characters who are feral creatures like the Megalodon. And these creatures should have personality. E even B-movies get that some of these characters should have personalities. So Meg 2 is a film that should be more exciting, but ultimately for a movie with as much bloodshed and as much violence as goes on here, it loses the basic focus of what this film should be. The 
character that should be the central character feels very tacked on. And altogether, it's just not a very impressive film. And there were times where I actually fell asleep while watching it. Meg to the Trench, I didn't expect to be a great film, but I was disappointed that it wasn't better than it ultimately was. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Happiness for Beginners. This is a film that is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on July 27th, 2023. And it is a film that has somewhat of a predictable premise in that there is a woman who is down on her luck. And she goes on a hike or a camping trip on the Appalachian Trail in one of those survivalist courses for beginners. The course is called Camping for Beginners. And even though she has not camped at all in her life, or so she says, she eventually finds herself. Uh, The star of the movie is Ellie Kemper, who plays a divorcee by the name of Helen, who is a school teacher. And when you're introduced to her, you know that she is entering this Camping for Beginners course. How she gets to sign up for this Camping for Beginners course and what motivates her to do so is not particularly well explained. But the movie is directed by uh, Vicki White, who also wrote the screenplay, and it's based on a novel of the same name written by Catherine Center. And this film might remind you of the film Wild from 2014, which is the true story of how a woman by the name of Cheryl Strayed actually went on the Pacific Crest Trail. Unlike the fictitious camping trip here, Cheryl Strayed did not go on a camping trip per se. She actually hiked the entirety of the Pacific Crest Trail. And the Pacific Crest Trail is the Appalachian Trail of the West, although the Appalachian Trail actually has more human amenities than the Pacific Crest Trail. But also, Wild is based on a true story. It's also based on a book, but it's also based on a true story. And... It, um, I, I love the movie Wild. It was one of the first movies that I reviewed when I started doing the Words on Film show. And back when I was reviewing it, it uh, Words on Film was a radio show exclusively, not a podcast. So unfortunately, that review is lost to time. But just to give you a synopsis, I did love the film Wild. And Happiness for Beginners does not compare too wild, not because it 
is fictitious, but because the characters are somewhat underdeveloped. And maybe some of the characters are stereotypes rather than archetypes, but I didn't mind this film. I just don't think it's particularly deep or it could have been as deep as it could have. For example, I would have liked to have seen Ellie Kemper's character when she's actually doing her job as a teacher. I wanted to know what class she taught. I wanted to know what subject she taught. I also wanted to know why she got into the teaching profession because there are some other characters here whose professions are revealed or lack thereof. There are some other people who are on this camping for beginners trip who just got out of grad school and are trying to figure out what to do with their life. And that is certainly very relatable, especially on my end. But I I wanted to know more about Ellie Kemper's character. And Ellie Kemper is an actress I really love. She was amazing on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And here she plays against type. She's not uh, as perky as she was on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt or on The Office or any of those other films or TV shows that have typecast her. And it's good that Ellie Kemper is, is playing against type. But her character needed to be a little bit more developed. And she also has this um, instance where she signs up for this Camping for Beginners trip and there is somebody she knows who is actually the best friend of her ex-husband. He's a doctor named Jake and he's played by Luke Grimes. And she suspects, and understandably so, that this guy who she's known for a few years, albeit not too well, is sort of stalking her or kind of looking after her. And you kind of know from their exchange in the very beginning that they are eventually going to fall for one another. It's honestly not very uh, surprising when they actually do. But I actually did like some of the other characters in this movie, um, especially characters that got a little bit beyond stereotypes. For example, I think one of the most colorful characters here was a gay man by the name of Hugh, who's played by Nico Santos. And he's one of those people who, if you hear him talk for five seconds, you know he's never camped before. And I'm not just saying that because he's gay. But there's also some other interesting characters here, like the person who's running this camping for beginners course, whose name is Beckett, who's played by Ben Cook. And you could tell from the sound of his voice, and again, I'm not trying to be homophobic here, but you could tell from the way he talks that he certainly had his share of moments where he hasn't fit in either. And there are some poignant moments with him where he and Ellie Kemper's character, Helen, actually get together and talk and relate to one another. And I like those scenes. I also like the very few scenes that Ellie Kemper had with Blythe Danner, who plays her grandmother, Gigi. And Blythe Danner is probably somebody who would make the ideal grandmother. I'm sure that Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, children are very lucky to have her as a grandmother. But I liked her in the few brief scenes she had here. So Happiness for Beginners is a film that is not exactly deep. It's the kind of movie that you would expect to find on Netflix. And I'm not saying that there are no great movies on Netflix. There are several great movies. I reviewed a lot of them and gave them my rating of a knockout here. But this is one of those films that might be good for some casual watching. If you're 
going camping or if you've come back from camping and you want to turn something on, this is the kind of movie to do so. I think it's pleasant. It's a bit hindered by its predictability, but I did like the cinematography. I liked the fact that Ellie Kemper was at least playing against type, and I do think that there is a role out there in a film for Ellie Kemper that is A, against type, and B, also has characters that are more developed. I think that Ellie Kemper does have a very rich future in movies ahead of her, and not just in TV shows. Not that there's anything wrong with TV shows, but I think this is a good start for Ellie Kemper. I just don't think it's the film that will instantly make her noticeable by the Oscar committee, for example. But Happiness for Beginners is a feel-good movie, to which I give my rating of a checkout. I do think that Ellie Kemper is good with what she's given. The problem is she's not given very much. I also didn't really buy the love story that happens here. I thought it was very predictable. But if Happiness for Beginners does make me want to do anything, it actually does make me want to read the book by Catherine Center. Kind of similar to the Meg movies that are also based on books. Because the rule generally is, if... Hollywood decided to adapt a film or a movie, excuse me, if if Hollywood decided to adapt a book into a film, then the book must be really, really good. There have been very few exceptions to the rule of books that I've read, but Happiness for Beginners as a movie is serviceable. I think it's relatively enjoyable. It's just a bit of a step above some of, for example, maybe Hallmark or Lifetime films, but As it stands right now, it's a pleasant watch, just not great. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters on the week of August 14th through August 18th, 2023. We are... Gosh, halfway through August and almost all the way through the summer. And down here in Nashville, Tennessee, kids have already started to go back to school. And I'm so used to having grown up in New England and and spending all my formative years and a vast majority of my life there. I'm so used to kids going back to school in at the earliest late August, like the last week of August, and at the latest after Labor Day. But here in the South, they do things a little differently. But regardless, what doesn't change is that movies are coming out in theaters. And there are a number of noteworthy ones. And there's one film that's going to be in theaters for one night only. And this is actually a film. It's not exactly a film. It's, it's um, Riff Tracks Live. And they are going to be riffing on the film Rad, which is a film that came out in 1986. And it's a film that starred a a couple of uh, well-known people, including Bart Connor, Lori Loughlin, before she was Aunt Becky and before she was a convict, 
Uh, also, Talia Shire is in this film. Ray Walston. So a couple of well-known people. Apparently, Rad was a film that didn't do especially well at the box office, but it did sort of maintain a cult following because of its campiness. And it's a film about people who um, race uh, BMX dirt bikes. So I haven't seen the film. I just kind of know it by reputation, and I love Rift Tracks. So I believe that uh, Rift Tracks Live Rad is a film that I will see, but because it's Rift Tracks, and it's not exactly a new film. I won't review it for you on the show because Riff Tracks is either funny or it's not. And there's really nothing more to say about it. But I'm just going there for my own entertainment. And it's going to be a good time at the movies. So, on August 18th, there are a slew of films that are going to be released in theaters. One of them is a film that's called Blue Beetle. And Blue Beetle is an action hero that is from the DC Comics. And because I'm not especially well-versed in DC Comics, I don't know the character of Blue Beetle, and therefore, I don't know exactly how to compare this. Is Blue Beetle part of the DC Extended Universe? I don't exactly know. I'm going to look it up for you while I tell you the synopsis of the film. So, Blue Beetle is about an alien relic who chooses Jamie Reyes to be its symbiotic host, bestowing the teenager with a suit of armor that's capable of extraordinary and unpredictable powers, forever changing his destiny as he becomes the superhero, Blue Beetle. Now, this film might not be that great for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's based on a DC Studios film, or it's a DC Studios film that's based on a DC Comics character, and frankly, a lot of the films that have been coming out from the DC Extended Universe are not great. There have been a couple of great ones. Uh, For example, even though The Flash bombed in theaters, I still liked it, and I thought it was well worth it. There were a couple of CGI mishaps that didn't quite translate to the screen very well, but I liked the story and I also liked how ambitious it was. And I certainly appreciated how ambitious it was. But there's another reason why Blue Beetle might not be that great. And that reason is because B- Blue Beetle sounds like the plot to Max Steel. And Max Steel was a movie that was based on a Mattel toy. It came out in 2016, which was not a great year in general, but most especially for movies. And Max Steel sucked. It sucked. So I don't have high expectations for Blue Beetle, but I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that's subject to being released in theaters on August 18th, Friday, is a movie that's called Strays. And this is a film about talking dogs, but it's rated R. So it's certainly subverting what would otherwise be a very kid-friendly genre. And it is directed by Josh Greenbaum, who has previously, as a director, brought us a couple of films that are worth noting. Uh, He directed a very quirky film before this one called Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which was a very strange film, but I also really liked it. And in terms of other films that he has directed, he hasn't directed a ton, 
of actual features, but he has directed a number of TV show episodes by uh, of the likes of New Girl, Fresh Off the Boat, and Bless This Mess, amongst others. So Strays is a movie that looks very subversive, and most likely is, and it actually features the voices of Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx, who play abandoned dogs who team up with other strays to get revenge on one of the dog's former owners. So um, there are also some other voice actors in this film, including Sofia Vergara, Isla Fisher, Randall Park, and some of the human actors in the film include Dennis Quaid, Will Forte, Josh Gad, and Rob Riggle. So a number of very experienced comedic actors. So I would think that this film might be funny. I'm not guaranteeing that it will be, but if Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx are on board and they know comedy very well, especially Will Ferrell, um, this film might be worth checking out. And I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on August 18th is a film that is very ill-timed in terms of its release. It's a film that's called The Haunting of the Queen Mary, and it's about a ship that's haunted. And this is very, very unfortunate that this film had to come out one week after The Last Voyage of the Demeter. But unlike The Last Voyage of the Demeter, The Haunting of the Queen Mary is an original story. It's directed by Gary Shore, who also co-wrote the story and screenplay, along with Tom Vaughn. And it's uh, about the mysterious and violent events surrounding one family's voyage on Halloween night in 1938 and their interwoven destiny with another family on board, the infamous ocean liner, present day. Now, I don't know very much about the Queen Mary in terms of its historical significance. It's obviously not as notorious as the Titanic, but I'm still interested to see it as well as learn a little bit more about the backstory. Some of the stars in the movie include Alice Eve, who I've seen in a few films, Tim Downey, Nell Hudson, and Joel Fry, amongst other people. Other than that, there aren't a lot of people here who are very well-known, at least not to me. I know Alice Eve is one of those actresses who comes up on the doppelganger list when you're listing actresses who look like Margot Robbie. And amongst other actresses on that list include uh, Samara Weaving and Jamie Presley. And they, yeah, definitely Margot Robbie looks a lot like them. It's almost like they are sort of cut from the same womb. But in any event, Haunting of the Queen Mary is a film that I might see. It's probably not going to be a film that's top of my list, especially compared to Blue Beetle and Strays, which is undoubtedly going to be the films that I will see for next week's show. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on uh, a show which is presumably going to be next week's show, but could possibly be a future show. That all depends on circumstances, a lot of circumstances. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on August 18th is a film that's called Landscape with Invisible Hand. And this is a drama, and it is about um, actually aliens, believe it or not. And it, it kind of sounds like one of those quirky indie films, which it just might be, but it is also a comedy, drama, sci-fi film. 
And when an occupying alien species, bureaucratic rule, and advanced technology leaves most of Earth impoverished and unemployed, uh, two teenagers hatch a risky plan to ensure their families' futures. This sounds like one of those movies that Steven Spielberg would have done in the late 70s or early 80s. It might even be one of those science fiction films he might uh, dabble in now, but it's definitely an underdog of a film about underdogs, especially teenagers compared to an alien race who's taken over Earth and, and they took our jobs. But um, the, it's an original story co-written by Corey Finley, and Corey Finley also is the director of the film. And amongst the actors in the film include Asante Black, Brooklyn McKenzie, Kylie Rogers, John Newberg, and Tiffany Haddish, in addition to John Hamilton, uh, excuse me, Josh Hamilton. So some familiar actors here and there, especially Tiffany Haddish. So I don't know if I'm going to be seeing this film. It's kind of a crapshoot as far as I'm concerned, because I have no idea whether or not this film will be playing in a theater near me. It looks like from some of the clips and some of the stills that I that I can see that it might be a, a film that comes out in the theater near me, but I can't guarantee it. But I'll look out for it, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the last film that I'm going to go over for you that is subject to being released in theaters on August 18th is a movie that's called Back on the Strip. And this is a film that looks like it's going to be in limited release, but it has an impressive roster of talent in it. It's about a young man who moves to Las Vegas to pursue his dream of being a magician, only to end up joining a male stripper group. Interesting. The film has a largely black cast. The star of the film is J.B. Smoove, who isn't a young man. He's been in films for a little while, and he's a very funny guy. But there are some other actors in the film, some big actors, including Wesley Snipes, Tiffany Haddish, again. My God, her itinerary must be loaded. And also, Kevin Hart is in this film. And Kevin Hart's character is just called Uptight Dad. So this is a film that I'd kind of like to see. Uh, I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.